We are in our third week of this series, A King's Story, and if you kind of follow chronologically through 1 Samuel, you're going to realize that we're at the place of David and Goliath, but I'm going to skip it if you don't mind. Because I think the more interesting thing with the David and Goliath story is the bookends of what David is experiencing this great victory in. And I, I think there's a cultural thing that we need to discuss as a church about doing the will of God in, in circumstances that may not seem like doing the will of God is the right thing to do. And, and how, does it, how do we react to it as followers of Christ? So we're gonna, I'm gonna reference David and Goliath, but um, I mean, it's a good story, isn't it? David and Goliath, a guy walks straight out from being a shepherd comes to bring crackers and cheese to his brothers on the front line. There's a giant nine foot Goliath standing up there cursing God and Israel. And, and David's looking around like, what are you guys doing? And and they're like, well, did you look at him? David's like, I got this walks down. He doesn't even put any armor on. He's got a shepherd clothes on. He's like, I got a slingshot. We'll do that. Picks up five stones on the way. Hits a dude between the eyes, knocks him down. Might have killed him right then, but he finished it off with his own sword. That's like a Mel Gibson movie. It's like Mel Gibson wrote that part of 1 Samuel. Think about it. You know, he stands up, freedom! Stands up at the end. It's become synonymous with every, every underdog story that we've ever heard. Like, that's a David and Goliath story. It's like every time WVU plays someone else, it's a David and Goliath story. So we're going to kind of reference it, but it's not going to be the main point today. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 18. And I think we're going to start in verse 6. How about we do that? So why don't you stand to your feet one time in honor of the word, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. You can see it on the screen. You can get in the app. Hope Community Church app, or you can find it on the Bible app on your phone. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 6, say amen, if you're ready. Amen. That's a very important, you need to reinforce me the whole time because I'm, I have low self-esteem and I'm not sure I can do God's will unless you're clapping. We'll get to that in a second. That means a lot. First Samuel chapter 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Hmm. And Saul was very angry at this saying and this saying displeased him and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands? And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, that's important. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. But David evaded him. Can somebody just tell me what that word says? Twice. I used to hear, fool me once, shame on me, or shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We'll get to that in a second too. 
Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. So Saul removed from him, removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was, had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then David said, then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. That's a whole nother sermon that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king to put in the trophy case in the front of the palace. That he, made by, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his daughter to Mike, Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that we'd be a church of people that would be able to follow your call no matter what. That our lives would be focused on pleasing you no matter how difficult it gets. Lord, put that, put that spirit in us, the same spirit that you put in David. Put it in us today. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. We'll back up to chapter 17 and we'll just highlight David and Goliath. Faith told you last week that David was put in the service of the king playing an instrument, a, a stringed instrument, and actually is his armor bearer. And uh, the spirit of God had left King Saul and we know that David was anointed king by, by Samuel the prophet. And so there's a 
there's an image of the Spirit of God leaving Saul and going on David. Now, David's not king yet. He's in service of the king. Now, the king is being tormented by an evil spirit, and it is evident for all of his staff to see. Like, this isn't just a little fit every now and then. This is real. This is, he is distraught. He's, he's, he's having these physical effects. He's being tormented. And so they bring David in, and David's, David's reputation at that point in time, evidently David was kind of going back and forth between the sheep and fighting the Philistines. He's a young guy, but he was involved in this back and forth, back and forth. So when, the, when, when Saul says, hey, find me somebody, they say, we know this kid, David, who's uh, pretty good looking. He, he, could play, he could play the guitar like a ring in a bell. Is that how the song goes? He could, uh, he could do all that stuff. And he's, he's brave. He's a warrior. So he comes into the service of the king. And when he plays the music, the king becomes peaceful. So everybody likes him. Like you're the one that calms him down. You're the one that can bring rationality back to him. That, so, um, so we get this picture now that David's in service of the king. But evidently he was going back and forth between service with the king and his father Jesse and still kind of has feet in both worlds where he's taking care of the sheep every now and then and then saw service every now and then. Because when we pick up David and Goliath in chapter 17, Jesse sends David to the battle. Now, the Israelites and the Philistines are squared up on each other. And the Philistines, um, the Philistines have a ringer. His name's Goliath. And he's huge. Goliath is stepping out every day going, hey, you get somebody to fight me, we'll just settle this up. Me and one other person. Mano a mano. We're going to go at it. And whoever wins takes the prize. And there's no one in Israel, there's no fighting man in Israel that even wants to take him up on it. Nobody. So Jesse sends David to take, check on the three, his three oldest brothers are there on the front lines. David is taking cheese and crackers or whatever you take them. And uh, I know there was cheese involved which must be important for battle. So David goes up, starts checking on the scenery. He's like, hey, what's happening? And he uh, starts asking around, gets to his brothers. Is this, is this really what's going on? Like this guy's walking out every day, cursing God. Is this what's happening? And his oldest brother says, you should really shut your mouth and go back with the sheep. You have no business up here. No business whatsoever. Now, now you feel a little bit of tension right there because it seems like, look, they were all there when Samuel anointed David king. They were all there. So you can imagine if David's going back and forth now, fighting a little bit, tending the sheep, fighting a little bit, tending the sheep, and his brothers have been committed to battle. Not going back and forth, but committed. You, you, could, you could feel the animosity brewing in them like, hey man, you know what? Don't just show up when there's a trophy to win. You get out of here. Go back to the sheep you're supposed to be tending. And I love the way David responds to him. So his brother's like, where do we, we don't even like you. Just go back to the house, what are you doing here? And the Bible says that David just turns and asks somebody else. <laughs> that's, that's a beautiful part right there. Can anybody here tell me what's going on? And he say, well, this big giant comes out every day. You got this 
image of David having a conversation with multiple people. The word gets to King Saul, who's in a tent, and he says, bring him to me. Brings him to him. He sees David dressed up like a, like a sheep herder. And he says, hey, let's put some armor on you. David gives it a shot. And he says, man, it's not going to fit. There's symbolic. There's a symbolism there that it wasn't David's time to be king yet. We'll get into that in a second. David takes it off. He says, I can do it without this. Walks down, picks up some smooth rocks out of a stream. Smacks Goliath right between the eyes, knocks him. I don't know if he kills him at that moment, knocks, he gets him on the ground and cuts his head off. That's crazy. He's the hero of Israel. Now, remember how this started. He just shows up to bring some cheese and crackers. He just shows up, hey, dad told me to come check on you. Get out. You're not supposed to be here. You're meddling in this thing again. You're always trying to show off. You're always, we saw the guy pour the oil on you. That doesn't mean you can fight this guy. You're taking it too far, David. Just go back to the house. Do what you're good at. Don't try anything different. Don't don't try to be a hero today. That's how he started. Then he walks out, kills Goliath in front of everybody. Only for the procession on the way home, they're singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, you know what? The irony here is David had no control over either of those circumstances. All he did was kill Goliath. He didn't have control over the way his brothers treated him. And he didn't have control about the way the women sung about him. So now, all of a sudden, Saul is rabidly jealous of him. David's just doing what David does. David comes back in. Saul's, Saul's got the evil spirit thing again, flipping out. David's just playing like, hey, man, calm down. He's playing a little Johnny Cash like, it's fine. Playing the Hurt song. I know it hurts. Only this time, it doesn't soothe him. Saul picks up his spear and throws it at him. And it says, David evaded him twice. These are the bookends of a victory. Nobody believes in him. Everybody hates him. Not everybody, but the people that really, really matter hate him. The people that could kill him hate him. Nobody believes in him. And now his boss hates him. You know what the crazy part is in our culture? I said it kind of earlier. Crazy part is in our culture, we want everybody to clap before we even try. Don't we? Hey, what do you guys, what do my followers think I should do right here? We want like, like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And if we don't hear, it must not be God's will. David's own family didn't think it was a good idea. You're going on Thanksgiving and you're with all your family and you're, and you're like, hey, I want to have this man. I mean, we've been praying about this with him. And everybody's like. No, it's not a good idea. You just ruined Thanksgiving. 
How, what are you? And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden we become a culture that needs clapping on both ends of everything that we do. In order to do a difficult thing, we got to hear, yeah, yeah, this is the right thing for you. This is the right thing. You should do it. You should do it. You should do it. And then we're like, yeah. And then when we do it, we want everybody to clap again. Oh, look at you. Look at you. It's like we're three going to the potty. Think about it. Come on, you can do it. You can do it. And then you do it and they're like, woohoo, you did it. The only trouble is we're adults. And it'd be weird for me to cheer you on in the bathroom now. But that's kind of where we become as a, as a culture. We need to make sure everybody's okay with it. And in case you haven't paid attention, the mob changes their mind every 30 seconds. So whatever they were clapping for you 30 seconds ago, they may stop clapping now. And if they clap before, you may do it, and then the culture changes, and they might, oh, we don't approve of that anymore. Yeah, but it was just just 30 seconds ago. I know, but that's not cool. An unbelievable victory, the one that we promote, the one that that we sing about, the one that we go, hey, David and Goliath, it was a sign God was with him. Only rejection started it, and rejection ended it. It was bookended by negative things, not not this like, oh, now David's on the path to success. Look at him go. Like, oh, nothing can stop him now. Except the crazy king who wanted him dead. And brothers that did not want him to succeed. He's not the first guy that had family problems in scripture. He's not the first guy, last guy to have family problems. Joseph way back before David had the same issue, God gave him a promise and then be bookended by difficulty. Before he would ever get into position, it would be hell on earth. His own family would sell him out. His own brothers would try to kill him. So I'm not trying to paint a negative picture here about the goodness of God in your life. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that in a culture where everything needs approved by other people, And truth is subjective to whatever you're doing in the moment when as a follower of Christ, you decide that scripture is the ultimate truth and this is what I'm going to live by and this is how I'm going to do it and this is how I'm going to raise my kids and this is how I'm going to treat my wife and this is what I'm going to treat my kids and this is what I'm going to do with my money and this is how I'm going to treat other people even if they don't like me and this is what I'm doing. If you're expecting the doors to open up and the crowd to go, yay, it's probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to happen. And the beautiful thing about David is when his brother ridiculed him, he had the courage before he got to Goliath, he had the courage to go like this. I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. It's the right thing to do. And it wasn't about David becoming famous for killing a giant. It was about David saying, how can you stand here and let that go on? Oh, if the church ever needs a word today, if the church ever needs a word today, it's not, it's not that we're trying to be ignorant. It's that I don't need a bunch of recognition, but how could we stand still and let it go on? 
And I'm not even talking about politics. I'm talking about stuff we can do without even opening up our mouth. How we could let people be treated. How we could let people suffer. How we could let all the things happen without the church standing up and going, did you see that? On my watch, it won't happen again. That's all David was doing with Goliath. So we have to... We have to get some backbone at some point in time to be able to understand that, that we are, if we haven't already, rapidly moving into a culture that will stop clapping for the things of God. We're moving to a season where the church will not be the popular thing if it's not already. Where when you say... I believe this is God's will for my life. You'll, you're going to be like, what? That's a dumb thing to even say. Why would you say that? Doesn't make any sense. And if we get sucked into the idea that we need approval from people to do the will of God, and then we clapping and reinforcement after we do it, it's going to be a short-lived deal. It's going to be a short-lived deal. So David, the bookends of Goliath, of a great victory were, Ridicule and rejection and more rejection. I remember, um, listen, I like approval. Amen? Thank you. I remember being in Ghana. I think it was 2016. Uh, the ministry that I travel with and, and do pastor training seminars. Some of you heard this story before. It was a, it was a one moment was life transforming for me. I've preached under 10 roofs with Massive amounts of people there. I've, 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 I've seen big crowds and, and, and heard people cheering. It's fun to preach in front of Africans. It's fun. And you can get enticed by people clapping. You can get enticed by social media. Where everybody's like, yeah, look at you. Look at you. You're great. You're great. You're great. You're great. You're great. I remember being in a church about set about 500 people. And we didn't know there had been a fight with this pastor's organization before we got there. We were supposed to be doing the seminar to train pastors in this area. And, and um, we didn't know there had been a disagreement. And so we show up, and then somebody starts telling us, hey, man, it ain't good. And I was the youngest guy on the team. I didn't, like, I don't even, I don't even know if I was, I might have been 40. Um, and I remember one guy was there, one guy. In a building that's had 500 people, there's one guy sitting right there, right up front. He had his notebook out, just sitting there waiting. And um, I thought, well, we're going to cancel it and send him home. I mean, what's the point? So the guy that run, was running the whole Ghana trip, uh, a guy named Peter Mayer, looks over at me and he goes, we're doing it. Chris, you're up. <laughs> I went, man, this guy ain't got enough amens to keep me preaching. You know what I'm saying? I walked over and I heard God say in my head, Will you treat him? Will you preach to him like you would a thousand people? Do you need that many claps to do what I asked you to do? Do you need that many amens to do what I asked you to do? Do you need that much affirmation to do my will? Are you that shallow? <laughs> and I went, yes, yes, this is going to be awful. God, have you ever preached to one person? 
So I just walked up in front of him. I didn't even stand, I never stand at the podium. I just walked up in front of him. I said, bro, we're going to do this today. And I thought, if I can't give him everything that I have, what do I, how do I even deserve to do it in front of more? And God is trying to raise up a church that doesn't need the approval. In case you were wondering, at the end of Jesus' life, they were not clapping. They were clapping for a crucifixion. And yet when you get to the New Testament, Paul says that I may participate somehow in his suffering. That Paul said, the, me becoming all I am in Christ doesn't include a bunch of clapping. It includes me going to the cross and crucifying this flesh. Me becoming less like me and me becoming more like him. And the more people clap, the more I become like Chris. Doesn't that stink? Past appreciation is coming up in October and I'm ruining it. Okay. But here's something I need you to see. So if we, if we follow the will of God, I'm not saying people won't approve. I'm saying our culture is changing. It has already changed. And the church can't wait for a bunch of claps to do the right thing. And David was experiencing a massive amount of difficulty and pain doing the will of God. This is important. This is important. Um, How how many of you like where you sit in church right now? You're like, anybody got your favorite seat? How many of you are sitting in your favorite seat this morning? Can you raise your hand, your favorite seat? Oh, the Wasco's got their favorite seat. Let me, I'm gonna, if you don't mind, I, I, I approved this with the online church. We're going to come down. Wasco's a great people. Watch this. So I have a friend that sits right back there, first service, and he comes super early to get a seat. Wasco's like this seat right here. So you know what I started figuring out is that when you sit in church, you pick your seat typically, unless some of you that came in late, I saw who you were, um, <laughs> you just get whatever. But the people that show up early enough, they sit where they want to sit, and they sit at the same place every week. And I have friends that'll tell me, like, hey, I came last week. You need to do something. They were sitting in my seat. <laughs> I'm like, show up on time. Um, the reason the Wasco sit here, I'm going to just spitball this, if you don't mind. The reason the Wasco sit here is because it's in the middle. You've got a good view. You can see both screens. You people sitting over there got to crane your neck. And that gets, that gets difficult. But it's a good seat. I'm comfortable here. It's fitting. No distractions. That's a good one, John. No no distractions. Okay, so watch this. In order for John to move, I've got two options right here. One, I could entice him by trying to convince him that the seat all the way over there on the end is better. Which is going to be a hard sell, right? So what we expect... What we expect as followers of Christ is when Christ, when God moves us, we want him to move us with prosperity. All right, so the problem is it's really hard to move me with prosperity when I'm convinced this is the most prosperous I can be. What God understands is that if it becomes painful, you'll get up during the service. If it becomes painful... Like all of a sudden, these seats we got here, all of a sudden the screw pops through the bottom of them. 
Good thing you weren't at the old church. That happened all the time. This, if the screw pops up through the bottom, you'll see John get up. It will not be the Holy Ghost. It'll just be pain. And he'll move over here in an awful seat because it won't hurt as bad. So what we learn is something that God already knows is that difficulty moves us, not prosperity. Prosperity causes you to build a bigger house on the land you already got. But when the neighbor starts throwing eggs at your house, you'll start looking at the listings tomorrow, right? But if prosperity keeps coming your way, you'll just get fat and happy and you'll just lock into the place you're in and you'll just be like, oh man, this is wonderful. This is the perfect little environment for me. And we become absolutely useless. What's that movie, Wally? But if a little bit of pain and discomfort comes in our lives, God can reposition us. It may not be the best view, but it's over where we can do the best work. So watch this. Watch this in David's life. When David kills Goliath, he has an interaction with Saul's son. Now, do you remember? Do you remember that before he killed Goliath, Saul tried to give him his armor? And David went, I can't take it. It doesn't fit. Because it was not yet time for David to wear the mantle of king. He was anointed to be king, but it wasn't his time to take it on yet. So he says, I can't wear it. After he defeats Goliath, he becomes friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, the rightful heir to the throne. If you follow the the proper succession about the way these things work. But we know the prophecy over over Saul was that God is going to take the kingdom from you and give it to someone who's better. So now David has killed Goliath. Him and Jonathan strike up a friendship and Jonathan, the natural heir to the throne, takes his belt off and his tunic and his sword and he gives them to David. And what does David do? He doesn't reject them. He puts them on. So all of a sudden, the symbolism that now David is the heir, not yet, but he's the heir. Now watch what happens. Now the difficulty comes again. So see how this is happening? He got a little victory, but he's not in position yet. Don't you think you can take the kingdom? Not yet. It's not your time. I still got to position you. I still got to give you a reputation. I still got to build you up. I I still got to make you kingly. And so all of a sudden, God is positioning David. How's he doing it? He's doing it with difficulty, not with prosperity. He didn't build David a big palace right beside the saws. He didn't, he didn't say there wasn't competing prosperity in, in Israel. No, David was suffering the whole time. Now, here's what you need to remember. Even though he was being victorious in battle, it doesn't change the fact that it was battle. All we read about is victory. We don't read about the, about the exhaustion. We don't read about the fear. We don't read about the, we got to fight again. We don't read about him going in and out and in and out of battle and what it does to a human being. We don't, we're not reading, we're like, well, he was victorious. He was victorious. Like he was showing up for a day at the office. But here's what was happening. Saul was sending him out to battle, not for him to build a reputation, but to kill him. He said, I'll make him a commander over a thousand. And that'll be the end of him. Oh, and then he does this weird thing where he tries to give David his daughter. I've been to three weddings in the last three weeks and I've yet to hear, boy, I'm going to give you my daughter. 
and she's going to get you killed. Who does that? Saul wants to give David his oldest daughter so that she could trip him up. Maybe this will get him tripped up. Maybe this will get him killed. Then David says, he's too honorable. Then David says, I can't, I'm, I'm broke. I can't pay a dowry. I can't do any of this. I don't, I don't have a reputation. I have nothing to give you. I can't do it. And then she goes off and ends up marrying somebody else. Then Saul swings back around later, finds out that his next daughter, Michael, she loves David. So this isn't just an arranged marriage. She actually loves him. And he's like, oh, I heard that she loves him. And so he tells all his servants, hey, go tell David. Go tell David she's hot for him. And so, so they get to David. We don't say that anymore. <laughs> what do we say? So what happens is, I need your reformation right now. Um, what happens is, he says, all his servants, go tell David that she loves him. You know what David's response is? The same thing, man, I don't have anything to give you. Saul says, we'll make an exchange. Bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. And I mean, that's a good trade. David said, I can deal with that. I'll earn my keep around here. He goes and kills 200 Philistines. Did you know in those times when a king gave a daughter to another person, this is what it symbolized. Typically, the weaker ruler would give a daughter in marriage to a stronger ruler. Are you following me yet? God was using difficulty in David's life to position him to be a king. If Saul sends him out to battle to kill him, God will use it to make him a victorious warrior. If God, or if if Saul tries to trip him up with his daughter, David David will respond with being even more victorious. We read at the end of, he just kept winning over and over and over again. So here's what I'm trying to tell you through this thing. The difficulty you're walking through right now could be God saying, you can't accomplish what I need you to accomplish sitting in that seat. So you need to trust me enough. It's going to get difficult. But the difficulty is to move you in a seat where you can accomplish all that I've called you to do. So what we typically do as modern day followers of Christ is we interpret every difficulty as, God, how could you do this? How would you let this happen? Like, it's so hard. I don't understand. Why you did this to me? And God's like, David, listen. In order for you to be the right king... I can't do the same thing I did to Saul and have it work out with you. You can't become king overnight. That's what Saul did. And we all know how that turned out. But David, there needs to be enough difficulty in your life to position you in a place where everybody realizes you're king and you deserve to be here. So guess what? That thing that Saul's trying to kill you with, I'm going to use it to make you victorious beyond your wildest imagination. That thing Saul's trying to use to, 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 
do his own will in your life. I'm going to turn it around and I'm going to use it and position you. And you see every difficulty that was heaped on David by Saul ended up giving him more credibility with the people. But if we as a church don't open our eyes up to this, we will poo-poo our way through our whole life. Well, I don't understand why he's doing it to me. I just start thinking in my life, God, you know the path that I take. I think Job prayed this. You know the path that I take. And when you have tried me, I'll be as pure as gold. Here's the confidence you can have. God knows every step that you're taking. God knows every saw in your life. God knows every, not the modern day saw. Well, that's weird. God knows every, God knows every enemy that's trying to come against you. And what he's trying to convince you of is that even though it's difficult, even though you have adversaries, even though you don't have anybody clapping, that he's using that circumstance to move you into a position to make you victorious. To make you the person that can accomplish his will. The truth of the matter is, as we'll find out later, Saul would chase David for years. He would chase him and try to kill him over and over and over and over again. So can I tell you something right now? It is less about the journey or less about the destination. And with God, it is always about the journey. You become like Christ on the way, not when you get there. Did you understand that? I don't need reinforcement. I just need to know you understood. You become like Christ on the way, not when you get there. A lot of us think, I'll straighten up when I get there. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No, no, no. Sanctification, becoming like Christ is a journey on our way. And so every difficulty, every adversary, every time the family doesn't believe in you, every time, every time if you heard a parent say, you're never going to make it, every time something like that happens, God can take that and cause it to be the exact inverse of what people intended for it to be and then position you, sanctification, becoming more like Christ, position you to where you can accomplish everything that he wanted you to accomplish. Difficulties did not change the call of God on David's life. It reinforced it. I'm going to say that again. Difficulties did not change the call of God on David's life. They reinforced it. Every time a difficulty popped up in David's life, boom. It actually increased his reputation. Every time. So my word to you this morning is don't, don't run away. Don't blame God. Don't. Don't be like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. No, no, no. God, you're building a reputation in me of your faithfulness. You're building a reputation in me that you know the beginning and the end. You build a reputation in me. And, and Lord, I understand that the seat you want me to sit in in five years, this is the only way I get there. Because I'm telling you, I'm just like everybody else. If you leave me in this spot, I'm gaining weight. 
If you leave me in this spot, I'm getting comfortable. If you leave me in this spot, I'm getting a bigger chair and a bigger TV. That's just the way it's going to go. Amen? I'm building a man cave right here. The family does whatever they want. But Lord, I'm going to trust you with the pain. Come on. There's somebody experiencing it this morning. I'm going to trust you with the pain. And when the twinge hits, I'm going to trust you that you're moving me. When it, when it hurts again, I'm going to trust you that you're reinforcing who I need to be. When it hurts again, I'm going to trust you that the, that the chair you're moving me to is for your purpose. You know what I realized when I read the New Testament in the life of Paul, the apostle? It was Paul's dream to go to Rome and preach. Preach before the big shots in Rome. I got dreams about doing big things. And I'll tell you, the path to me doing big things is always pretty easy. Come on, don't you write the same story for you? It's this gradual success after success, and you just kind of ride that. Anybody ever bodyboarded? I'm too uncoordinated to surf. Anybody ever just laid on a board, and then when the wave hit, you just rode it in, and you're like, I look like a stinking pro on this thing. That's the way I always write my life. Just, Lord, I'm going to ride it right into glory. And everybody's going to be clapping. My kids and family will be looking at me. Look at dad riding on the board. And then I read about Paul. And he did get to Rome and he did preach. But he was chained up the whole way. Shipwrecked. Snake bit him. And can I be a little transparent with you? Stand up to your feet. There are times in my life where I don't know if the will of God for me is worth the pain. Can I just be honest with you? Like I look at Paul and I look at Rome and I look at the what he was able to do and able to accomplish. And I say, Lord, if I gotta be, if I gotta be chained up and shipwrecked and imprisoned and all that stuff to get there, I'm not sure it's worth it to Chris. I look at David and I look what he walked through to be king. And I'm like, Lord, if I gotta be chased down by the by my predecessor and try to be killed, my family doesn't even support me. If I gotta go through all that to get where you want me to go, I don't know if it's worth it. And God is looking for a group of people that go, hey, it's worth it to me. It's worth it to me to fulfill your calling in my life. This pain, if it's, if it's to serve your purpose, I'm going to roll with it. If it's to serve your purpose, I'm going to let it move me. If it's to serve your purpose, Lord, in my life, I'm going to embrace it. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to blame it on anybody else. I'm going to just wrap my arms around it and let it take me to glory. I'm not a masochist, but I understand that that's the way things work, Lord. And I am willing to walk through. I'm willing. Paul says that I could participate in his suffering and somehow obtain the resurrection. It's, a, it's the story of less of us and more of him. And Lord, if you've got to cause a little pain in my hip or pain in my, to get me to move over to where I can bring you the most glory, then be, have at it. Have at it. 
if David being king brought God the most glory, but it was pain that ushered him into that throne, then David said, have at it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that psalm does not get written without Saul chasing him. That psalm does not get written without pain in his life. And so I'm here to tell you today, if the clapping stops and the pain starts, you're probably in a good spot. And allow God to move you into that position and allow him to use you like you've never been used before. Stop making excuses, stop blaming, and just say, hey, Lord, I don't hear any clapping, but angels, and they make a lot of noise right now. And it hurts really bad, but I'm moving where you want me to be, and I'm going to do what you want me to do, regardless of anything else. Amen? Come on, can you agree with that this morning, Lord? We thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for your goodness. For everybody in this building walking with pain in their life right now, I pray that it would it would be like an anointing on them. There'd be a holy confidence, God, that they are in the right spot doing the right thing, no matter who says it. God, give them confidence that you're moving them into position, Lord to do your will. Thank you for it, God. Come on, church, lift it up to him today.